Appreciate it. It is my joy and sobering privilege to begin a new Sunday School series with you. And the Sunday School series is on hermeneutics. That is, how to read and study the Bible. Some introductory information. There's actually going to be a lot of introductory information today because I want to set some good groundwork for what we're going to do going forward, but um, some things to know. This series is meant to teach you something that is incredibly deep and valuable, and yet it's also supposed to be simple and accessible. So whether you're a relatively new believer and you're just discovering the Bible for the first time, or whether you yourself are a Bible teacher, there is something profitable for you to for you to learn here and to be reminded of, not just today, but the coming weeks. Of course, that makes sense when we are dealing with an infinitely valuable text and something that has infinite resource in it, like the Bible. I like to keep the classes interact interactive. I think people learn better that way. So I'm going to expect and ask you to participate. I appreciate your questions. I appreciate your extra insights as we move forward I believe that's edifying to the body and it's edifying to me, so please be prepared for that. You probably saw in your insert that this series is based on a book, and that is this book called Living by the Book. Subtitle is The Art and Science of Reading the Bible, and it's by two guys, Howard Hendricks and William Hendricks, father and son team. Just a little bit more about these guys. Howard Hendricks, the father, only recently died, I think it was last year. He was a faculty member at Dallas Theological Seminary for more than 60 years. He also was a, um, a noted speaker in many different mediums. He spoke at a number of engagements around the world, on radio, on tape, through books, on film, and he was also teacher and chaplain for the Dallas Cowboys at one time. So there you go. The son, Bill Hendricks, is a Harvard grad who majored in English. Very excited about that. Um, he also got his master's in biblical studies from Dallas Theological Seminary. He is the author and co-author of 17 books, including this one, and also some other works, um, two of them entitled, Your Works Matter to God and the Light That Never Dies. Now you're saying to yourself, that's great, a lot of credentials there, but are they biblical? Well, let me give you a little bit to allay any fears you might have. While not listed as specific endorsers of this book, the book does make reference to John MacArthur and John Piper um, several times, especially if you go to the additional resources section. He has a number of different John MacArthur books that he lists as, as things that you should look up, like the MacArthur Topical Bible, the MacArthur Bible Handbook, MacArthur New Testament Commentary, talks about grace to you and desiringgod.org. So those have to be good signs. And also, if you go to the Dallas Theological Seminary website and look at their doctrinal statement, you'll see that it aligns uh, pretty much all the way with what this church believes. They affirm the inerrancy of Scripture. They, they affirm the total depravity of man. They affirm salvation by faith and repentance in Jesus that produces sanctification. They don't actually mention the word election, but everything they say about salvation um, implies sovereign election. And they also affirm the pre-tribulation rapture and the premillennialist return of Christ and the literal kingdom of Israel. So I think it's pretty good. From my own study of this, my own sifting through this, I found it very helpful and I found it biblical. So I believe we can trust these guys and we can trust um, the information from this study. But why this Sunday School series, and why this book? Why is this important for you to listen to and to hear about? Well, one of the reasons why I'm doing this specifically is because recently I, I was a teacher at Timothy Christian School, and I was teaching the high school Bible courses, or a number of the high school Bible courses, and I taught the senior class in their biblical studies course. And in that course, I spent an extensive amount of time talking about hermeneutics, 
how to study the Bible, how to read the Bible. I found it personally edifying. I think the students found it edifying, so I've updated and retooled the content so I can share it with you. One discovery that I made early on in the course, this Bible course I did with the senior students, is that probably most people, but certainly most high school students, don't read the Bible. They don't read it at all. And how did I find this out? I don't know if this thing is going to go to screensaver several times, so I'll just try and make sure it doesn't do that. <clears throat> they don't read. And how did I find this out? Well, this book has a little survey in it that asks you about your Bible reading, and it's anonymous, and I pass it out to my class, not just to the seniors, but to the juniors as well. It asks you how often do you read your Bible, and, and why don't you if you don't? The vast majority of students admitted to not reading the Bible at all. And those that did read, or said that they did read, read only once a week or once a month. I recall few, if any, who said that they read their Bibles every day. Wow. Christian school? Christian families? No Bible reading? As I said, the survey asked why, and the, and the watch says the students checked a number of um, reasons why they don't read. And some of the reasons are very common reasons, common excuses why people don't read the Bible. And I think sometimes we can even relate. Let's see if I can actually go to the slide that tells us about this. Yeah, okay. First, the Bible's just not interesting. It's boring. There's nothing that, this is what they would say, there's nothing that grabs my attention when I read it. There are plenty of other things I'd rather spend my time doing than reading a dusty, old, lifeless book. It's just not interesting. Or they might say, the Bible's not practical. What I'm dealing with isn't talked about in the Bible. There's so many other things going on in my life, I just can't afford to read it. I can't spend my time doing it. The Bible's too ancient. It's too far removed to be worth my time in reading it. And when I read it, I don't get anything out of it. Or they might have said, the Bible is confusing. I don't know how to study it. I can't make sense of it. I have a hard time understanding what the passages say. And then, on top of that, there's so many different interpretations of the passage, I don't even know what anybody's talking about. It's just too hard. Or they might say, the Bible is not trustworthy. I mean, the Bible is written by men. Men are not perfect. How can I trust it? Besides, there are a lot of other religious books out there. Why highlight this book? Why should I believe this book and commit to reading it if I don't even know it's true? Or... They said, Bible study is not necessary because I got the pastor. I can just go to church. That's where I get my Bible from. I mean, I'm just a layman. Why slog through all that confusing information when someone who's more qualified and who's getting paid to do it can just study it for me? I can just go to church. I'll carry the Bible information with me the rest of the week. And if I have a question, I'll just ask him. Now, one option that wasn't on the survey, but I think is a, another reason that we that we actually sometimes think about. So we say, oh, I don't need to study the Bible, or I don't need to study consistently because I already know everything I need to know. I've studied it already. Or I've been instructed very well. I mean, I know theology. I know doctrine. I can quote the Bible easily. There's really nothing more for me to learn. There's nothing more for me to mine. I've run out of worthwhile things to learn from the Bible. Students in my classes check these different reasons again and again. And what about you and me? Where's our Bible reading at? Can we relate to some of these excuses? 
If I handed out that same anonymous survey in this congregation, how would we fare? I think it would be better. I think uh, this, this church certainly values Bible reading, and we value Bible study. So I think it would be better, but that doesn't mean that our Bible study is where it ought to be. Perhaps you've also thought, in addition to some of these things, something like this. I may be able to discipline myself to read the Bible every day, but it just feels like more of a burden rather than a joy. Or, even though I keep on reading the Bible, I can't recall the last time I was arrested by something I read. I was super excited about something I saw in the Bible. Last time I learned something new from it in my own study. Or, yeah, I can keep on reading it, but I really don't understand hardly anything that I read. Or I keep on reading, but I don't remember any of the things that I read. This would be tragic, right? If we were indeed doomed to devote ourselves to such a burdensome and fruitless study merely because God says so, it would be pretty depressing. But that's not the way it is. That's not what the Bible is. All these different things that we sometimes think about the Bible and that students think about the Bible, they're just not true. And the Bible itself says the opposite. The Word testifies that it's the opposite of everything we falsely say and think about. It's not an uninteresting book. It is a compelling book. And I'm going to, list, I'm going to tell you some scriptures where the, the Word actually claims this and gives us a little bit of reason for this. Psalm 119.18 says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things from your law. The psalmist said, there are wondrous things in there. I want to find out about them. He also said, psalm, the, another psalm, Psalm 19.10, I'm talking about the word. He says, it's more to me desired than fine gold, uh, sweeter also than the honey and drippings of the honeycomb. And we may be more, more familiar with other scriptures that talk about the special nature of this book. Hebrews 4.12 for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and of discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's strange, but as Christians, we, we can be excited to be convicted by the word. We say, I know that it's going to show me uh, something that I need to change, but I want to know about it. I'm excited to learn about it. And it's special also because this is God himself. It's him, his breath in the word. As 1 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God. So it's not uninteresting. It's compelling. It's not impractical. It's quite practical. In fact, it's written directly for you and for me. Romans 15.4 says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction." That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And he was talking about the Old Testament at that time, and that was a long way removed from his original audience. But he says it wasn't written just for people in its own time. It was written for you, right where you are. That's true for you and me today. 1 Corinthians 10.11 says something similar. Paul writes, now these things, he's talking about things in the Old Testament, they happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. We're part of that group. We're part of that group, the end of the age, the last days. And he says, it's written directly for you. It's not um, 
too confusing to understand, it's actually quite accessible. It's understandable. I like some of these verses. They give comfort to me, maybe to you. Psalm 19.7, the second part of the verse says, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. If this word can make the simple wise, someone who's not that intelligent, not that wise, not that great, then there's hope for you and me. We can understand this word if the simple can understand it. Or 1 Corinthians 1.26-29 says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We are that group. We're not many wise. We're not many noble. We're the foolish of the world. But he says, I'm writing you. I'm I'm communicating to you something that you can understand, even in your simpleness, in your foolishness. It is accessible. It is understandable. It's also not untrustworthy, but completely trustworthy. Uh, What's that word? Actually, I already said it earlier. What's that word that talks about the Bible being without error? Somebody got it? Yes, inerrant. That's that theological word. It is without error. It's perfect. And that verse I already mentioned, Psalm 19.7, the first part of it says that. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And Jesus affirmed that too. Kind of an odd section where he's talking with some Pharisees, and he claimed to be God, and they get ready to stone him. And he says, why are you going to stone me? And they say, well, you claim to be God, and you're a man. He says, don't you remember in the scriptures, this is what John 10.35 says. He was talking about, um, actually, one other piece of information. It makes reference to a section where people are called gods in a sarcastic way. But he says, John 10.35, if he called them, that's God, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, that's all I really need to tell you from that verse. He's, He's giving a presupposition there. He says, we already know We have this baseline here that scripture can't be broken. So if this thing was said, then we have to take it. We have to to deal with it. It's not an error. It was something perfectly written by God, purposely written by God. So we can trust it. And we do. Two other things. It's not reserved for leaders only. It's meant for everyone. It's meant for you and me to be daily, daily nourished by and protected by. 1 Peter 2.2, we've heard this verse, I'm sure, many times, says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. He's not talking to the pastors there. He's not talking to the elders there. Well, he is, but not just them. All of us need it. All of us in the congregation. We're not supposed to rely merely on somebody else. Yes, we're equipped and we're further benefited by teachers of the word, but we are to look at it ourselves. Get that milk that we need. And there's a good reason, too. What would be a potential danger if you merely relied on other teachers to tell you what the Bible says? Somebody, say that again. What do you mean? That's right. Somebody might be teaching it inaccurately. Somebody who hasn't studied it enough or has an agenda, you could be swayed. You could be um, led astray. And that's for that reason, 1 John 4, 1 says, Beloved, 
do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Historically, this has proven to be a problem when people don't study the word for themselves. And so we need to make sure that we are able to sift what someone says. Any teacher, we say, is that biblical? And finally, the word is not exhaustible. There's no way you can say, I'm done reading the Bible. It is inexhaustible. Romans 11.33, when talking about the wisdom and knowledge of God, Paul writes, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. It didn't mean that you couldn't understand him or you couldn't search out any of his ways, but he just says you can never get to the bottom of it. It's the infinite God. And if it were exhaustible, then why would this command appear in Joshua 1.8, where he says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Now, he said that only about the, essentially the first five books. And he said, you will never get done with these. You'll just keep going back to them day and night. If you do that, you're going to be blessed. You're going to, your way will be prosperous. And we have so much more than that. So we have all these claims from the Bible that contradict what we say falsely about it. What is the solution when it comes to viewing and studying the Bible? To recognize the falseness of our excuses and to approach the word with a method that is consistent with what the word of God claims, that it is comprehensible, that it's perfect, it's without error, that it is purposeful. Everything in it was done exactly the way it should have been done for some reason, and it is life-changing. So that's what we're going to learn about as we go forward. What kind of method uh, keeps those things in mind? A few disclaimers, though. Three, at the very beginning. One, you will not be able to fully comprehend the Word of God if you don't know God, if you, have not, if you do not have the Holy Spirit inside of you. If you've not repented and believed by faith in the Son of God as your righteousness and to save you from your sin that damns you, you won't be able to fully understand the Word of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, folly, foolishness, stupidity. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. There are plenty of biblical scholars out there who don't understand the Bible because they don't know God. So we need to make sure that we understand no amount of knowledge and study can open our eyes to the Word if God doesn't open them uh, first to see Him. We need the Holy Spirit. We need to believe and be saved before we can truly benefit from all the Word has to say. So that, one disclaimer. We have to have the Holy Spirit. Two, I'm going to try and help you with your Bible study in this course. However, reading the Word will always be a battle because there are spiritual forces involved. You've heard this phrase probably, or maybe you've heard this phrase. The Bible will keep you away from sin or what? Sin will keep you from the Bible. No matter how much you love God and His Word, you still have a fallen flesh. You still have that old man clinging to you, trying to take you away from spiritual things. So it's going to take discipline to constantly read and profit from the Word. And especially, 
If you have unrepentant sin in your life, you're going to find that you do not want to read the Bible. And if you do, yes, you might be convicted by it, but other than that, you probably won't profit from it. If we grieve the Holy Spirit, how is the Holy Spirit going to guide us into the truth of the Scriptures? So that's the second thing. One, we need to have the Holy Spirit if we're going to fully benefit. Two, we've got to recognize that no matter what, there's always going to be spiritual forces involved, so we're going to have to fight against that. Uh, fight against those things that want to keep us away from the Bible. And three, profiting from the Word takes prayer. I don't want to minimize that. And that verse we read earlier from Psalm 119 where he says, show me wondrous things, that's a prayer. He's praying to God. He says, I, without your help, I can't see these things. I can't find the good things in the Scripture. So I need you to help me, God. Paul prayed this on behalf of the Ephesians. You remember at the beginning of a, the book of Ephesians, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, that's the Ephesian church, remembering you in my prayers. What was he praying? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. He said, I'm sure Paul was not only praying for himself, but he prayed for others. He says, help them to understand about you, God. So, Profiting from the word is also going to take prayer. With those three qualifiers, I hope I made it clear, I don't want to minimize the spiritual component of Bible study. That's very important. But on the other side, this method, this approach, I guess you could say the more, more rational side, that's what I want to talk about more in this Sunday School series, and that's what we're going to start with today. But let's pray before we tackle that, uh, tackle that task. Let's pray and ask God to bless this time. Holy Father, we, we pray along with the psalmist. Show us wondrous things from your law. Show us wondrous things from your word. Lord, forgive us for where we think wrongly about your word, where we think there's um, nothing to profit from it, uh, that, it's not, that it's not actually so joy-filled and, and so edifying to us. Lord, help me to be able to explain well and help them to be able to understand. Give us understanding of this method. Give us understanding of the word. And let this just be a sweet time now. Lord, forgive us our sins and thank you that you have if we've believed in you by faith. And help us to walk in a way that's right. pray this in your name. Amen. Okay. So the title for today's lesson, this first lesson, is called The Method for Bible Study, Rediscovering the Art of Reading. Today, I want to introduce this method to you in an overview way, and then talk a little bit about the first part, and even practice that first part a little bit. We won't be able to even um, adequately cover that first part today. We're going to need to take a little bit more time next week, so look forward to that. Well, what is this method? Before I tell you, let me just ask, what is the goal of Bible study? Please. What's the goal of Bible study? Steve. Okay, it's to know more about God, right? To understand more about Him. Is that the only goal? True, yes. What's another goal of Bible study? Roy. Okay, and... Right, we're, we're listening, we're trying to understand what he says, and understanding what he says is going to produce something in us, right? It's not merely to be knowledge taken in, but what is another goal of Bible study? 
In what? When you say Christ-likeness, how am I going to be able to tell that? Well, yeah, what is Christ-like? We find in the scriptures, but if I'm just looking at you and looking at your life, how am I going to know whether you're Christ-like or not? What do I need to see? That results in a change in? You're telling me all true things. What? Behavior, right? Change in actions. I have to see the word lived out. This is a, an error that, that Christians often get into, is that we think that Bible reading is enough. Oh, if I just know about God, that'll be enough. In a sense, that's true, because the knowledge is what produces the change in you. But if we stop, if we say no change is necessary in my life, we haven't really profited from the word. In fact, one could even argue that we've actually made our situation worse. Because the Bible says, if you know what to do and you don't do it, to you it's sin. And he says, the one who knows more, I'm going to require more of him. So those are certainly goals. And we could say other things like experiencing the joy of God, um, uh, falling more in love with God. They're all goals of Bible study. And so those are going to be part of this method that we want to interpret, we want to understand the Bible, and we want to apply the Bible. We want to actually see it change our lives. But before we can even come to an interpretation of the Bible, understand what it says or what it means, we need to do something else first, more basically. What do we need to do before we can even come to an interpretation of a certain biblical passage? Greg? Okay, yeah, a system of interpretation. And you'll be looking for certain things according to that system as you read. Before you can come to an, to an interpretation, a right interpretation of a passage, you need to observe the passage. You need to look for certain things in the passage, look for clues in the passage as to what it actually means. Because so often, and the authors point out this in their book, Christians will start at interpretation without actually taking time to really look at the text. And because of that, they are not able to come up with an interpretation, a helpful interpretation, or they come up with an inaccurate interpretation. And that, of course, once you have an inaccurate interpretation, if you're trying to apply that inaccurate interpretation, you're going to get some weird things. You're going to get some unprofitable things. So that is essentially what our method is. Three steps. Observe, interpret, and apply. Now, there's more to say about each one of these steps, but really, this is pretty simple. When we observe, when you look at a passage or you look at a verse or you're looking at a book of the Bible, you're asking yourself, what do I see? What do I see in this passage? You're trying to notice as much as you can, because as we said earlier, every little piece of that passage was purposely put there by God, by His Spirit. So we want to know why. That's the interpretation part, but to figure that out, we have to see what is actually there. We've got to spend time just looking at the text, observing different things. Second, we ask, what does it mean? We interpret it. We piece together those different things we noticed about the passage or on the text to understand what is the actual message God is communicating, or what is the principle that he is communicating in that verse or passage. And then finally, we apply it. We ask, how does it work? How does it work for me? Because it's going to work itself out in my life if I truly understand it. How does it work for me? How will it work for other people? We want to react appropriately to God's message and live out the principles that His Spirit communicates. For a good analogy of this, consider a famous fictional detective. Many of you may be familiar with Sherlock Holmes, Mr. Holmes, that fictional character devised by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, first appearing in print in 1887. 
more recently appearing in a number of TV shows and movies. What is it about Sherlock Holmes that makes him so fascinating and famous? Khalif. You don't know about Holmes? Okay. Okay. You kind of jump ahead to where I want to go. But yes, his powers of observation, which would enable him to do what? Oh, yes. The, the deductions that he would make. Though some argue that it isn't actually deduction, it's abduction or induction. They come up with some other terms. But essentially, he's making inferences. He's coming to conclusions based on, as Greg said, observations. He makes observations. And through that, he's able to actually solve crimes. Now, if you've ever read the stories or seen Sherlock Holmes in action, or really any detective show, why is it that Holmes, or the special detective, are able to observe things, and other people don't. Other people aren't able to observe those things. Or, Emma. And so, if they're only... Wait, explain that a little bit more. Okay, yeah. Holmes has been trained, and these other detectives have been trained into what to look for. And by extension, those who, who miss those clues, they have not been trained. Why else might they fail to observe? Fail to actually notice certain things. Amy? They have pre so they're only looking for the things that support their already. Ah, that's really good. Essentially, what they've done is they've jumped to interpretation too soon, right? They, they feel like they already know what it is. Oh, no, open, shut case. This was, you know, murder, whatever it was. But our, our Holmes character, our detective, says, oh, no, wait, let me see if that actually holds up with what's here at the crime scene. Are you going to say something else, Steve? Mm. Yeah, there, there are a number of different reasons why the, the people in these different situations fail to observe what Holmes does. They don't take the time. They're not looking for certain things. They haven't been trained as to what to look for. They feel like they already know the answers, any of those reasons. The clues are always there, and they're objective. It's not like Holmes just had a, a, um, a different opinion about things. He just saw what they didn't see. It was always there. They just didn't recognize it. And even he supposedly said, you see, but you do not observe. And because of his observation skills, he's able to make those revelations, those aha moments. And he's able to solve the cases and see justice served. We could say, bringing this back to what I was just talking about, Holmes observed, he took note of clues, he interpreted the clues rationally to figure out what they revealed about the case, and then he applied the clues by uh, figuring out who the criminal was, tracking him down, and bringing him to justice. Do you think Holmes enjoyed looking for clues? Or was he like, man, this is drudgery? <coughs> yeah. yeah. And why, why would the puzzle be enjoyable? Yeah, and getting that answer is enjoyable, right? Even if he doesn't have the answer right away, he says, ah, look, another piece of this puzzle is connecting. I see more of the picture. If you've ever done a puzzle. It is enjoyable as you get more and more pieces. It's the same thing with our Bible study. We, like Holmes, need to spend time observing. 
Not coming to that passage with a bias, but just saying, what's here? What can I see? And then, using those clues, piecing them together, and experiencing even the joy of that, we say, ah, more of the picture's coming into view. Even if I'm not getting it right away, I see more. And then, maybe even eventually, we say, ah, now it's all clear. I see what he's trying to say in this section to me right now, today. But you might say, I'm not Holmes. I don't have the skills. I'm not good at observing passages. Well, two answers to that. One, we're going to get better at it. We're going to learn. We're going to practice. And second of all, it's amazing, actually, how good observational skills you actually have when you try. When we actually take time to observe something, it's amazing what we'll notice. And I want us to actually practice that a little bit with a picture. I'm going to take some minutes, and I'm just going to ask you to look at this picture and tell me what you notice. Tell me what you see. Okay? Now, it's going to take me a tiny moment just to go get it, though, so hang on. Okay. Hopefully, I know it's a little... Can we dim lights? Dim lights for, so everybody can see this? There's not as much glare. How many of you have seen this painting before? Okay, a lot of you. It's famous. How many of you have closely looked at this painting, spent a good amount of time looking at this painting? Okay, maybe like one or two of you. That's good. Because now I want us to see what we can notice when we actually look closely at it. What is one thing you notice about this picture? Oh, we need, we need a whole bunch of these. Diane. Very good. I know it's a little bit shadowy down there, but there's some feet there. You can notice what they're wearing. What else do you see? Yes. Very good. There's windows looking out to a landscape. Very good. What else? Yes. Can you tell what kind? Yes, bread. There's bread on the table. Seems to be mainly bread. What else? Emma. Yes. Does that seem strange? Doesn't happen in real life very often, right? But it's awfully convenient for this painting. What else? <laughs> what else? Amy. Yes. You can see a lot of um, hands in different positions. And yeah, they, they're expressive. Steve. Is there only 11? Yeah, one of them might be a little bit hard to see. Yes, it's good. It's good to have that mathematical mind. We do want to count. There are 13 people here. And that's going to help us in our interpretation. What else? Yes. Oh, we'll have, to, we'll have to discern that. Do you see a woman or someone who looks like a woman? Yes. Where, where do we see a woman? Right. This character to your, your left of Jesus definitely looks like a woman. But let's, uh, we're going to do a little bit of interpretation here. Thirteen people. 
And hopefully you have some idea of what this scene actually is of. This is entitled The Last Supper. So we are talking about that biblical scene. So if there are 13 people, we would expect Jesus and his 12 disciples. So why would there be a woman in place of one of the disciples? We could say, okay, maybe Judas has already left. That's one possibility. Is there another possibility? Very good. Don't ask me why. I tried to look this up. I'm not sure why. But poor Apostle John is almost always portrayed like a woman. Ah, poor guy. It isn't because there's any record of him being feminine or anything like that, but the tradition is that he was very young. And so to portray youthfulness, they make him look a little bit more feminine. So that's not Mary Magdalene. That's not any other woman there. That's probably John. And that'll help us, I think, a little bit in, in some other things in this, this painting. A few more observations. Yeah. There's a lot of different... Um, oh, nice. There's a... The, the body posture is very varied in this painting. And some definitely seem to be leaning away. In fact... If we're, if we're looking at the center character, we might say that there's, there's more leaning away going, going in those two directions. But there also is a little bit of leaning in um, and some other parts. And uh, we might be able even to identify one of the characters based on that. I'll come to back to that in just a second. A few more observations. Dwayne? Yeah, that's probably John. Ah, very good. There's somebody who is leaning in on what is likely the Apostle John, and that could, that could tell us something. A few more observations. Roy. Yes, yes, it's very, very emotional. And if you had to describe the emotion, I know you can't see their faces super well. What kind of emotion? Okay, maybe distress. Someone said excitement. Agitation. Confusion. And certainly, um, because of the different body postures, the hands, and, and as you'll see maybe a little bit, some of the expressions... That, there's an emotion that comes through that's going to tell us a little bit more about this scene. Um, let me see. One other thing I want to say. Well, let me just show you a little bit closer view of um, one part of it. Sorry, my computer is a little bit slow. So a little bit closer view, I'm looking especially at these three characters there in the middle. Do you notice anything else? Yeah. Okay, one of these hands here from one of the characters seems to be reaching out towards the bread or, or towards that dish or to something in that area. Anything else you notice? Because of the distress that's going on, 
Okay, you're doing something interesting here. You're coming up with an interpretation based on our observations, right? These different clues that we've, that we've noticed. Um, I, before I talk more about interpretation now, any other things that stick out to you right here or that you notice? Yes, someone's got a knife. Someone's got a blade. So you can understand this, this expression right here. He's like, whoa, right? Yeah, someone's got a, a weapon right there. Yeah, Dwayne. Okay, that's a good observation too. Uh, you may have noticed a number of things that are a little bit biblically inaccurate here. They're sitting in chairs. They're, um, that it's daytime. Did you notice uh, what the cups are made out of? They're transparent. They're made out of glass. That doesn't seem entirely biblical accurate, biblically accurate. So we could observe a ton of other things about this painting. There are rectangles all over the place. There's kind of a halo around that center, center character because of the window. You may notice, uh, I'll show you in just a second with a, with a larger view of this, that all the lines, or many of the lines in this painting seem to be pointing towards a certain direction. But let's do a little bit of interpretation here. We talked a little bit about that feminine character being John. Can we identify any other characters in this picture? And if we do, it has to be based on clues, right? Why do you say that? Why Peter with a knife? Well, I don't remember Peter with a knife. Very good. If, we, if we're trying to interpret this character, we might say, well, Peter was the one in the garden who takes out a sword and strikes the servant, the servant of the high priest. So maybe the artist is trying to show us, ah, yeah, this is Peter. He's already got his blade ready. I'm ready to strike. Who is it? I need to strike. So maybe that is Peter. And we could even look at an additional piece of information, an additional observation from this that would show us that that, that is indeed Peter. What were you going to say, Steve? Right, right. If we think about the biblical account, Peter goes to John, he says, ask Jesus a question. So we have a character leaning on the John character. It looks like he's about to say, you know, whisper, talk to Jesus. And he's got that blade. So we can say, yeah, that, that probably is Peter. As we're coming to this interpretation, we're looking at the observations of these different things. What were you going to say, Greg? Oh, this guy on the left? Oh, that's a good observation. I didn't even think of that. But yes, that's, that's really good. What about this character in the, uh, in the front here? A little darker. Anybody tell a good observation over here about the one hand going forward? What's this other hand doing? Clenching, right? Or even holding. Anybody tell what he's holding? I know it's a little bit indistinct, but yeah, he has a bag in his hand. And if it, it could even be a money bag. And if it's a money bag, which character are we probably looking at? Judas, right? Why would a money bag be associated with Judas? Steve? He was the keeper of the money for the disciples, and there's another reason we might associate money bag with him. That's right. At this point, he would have already received the 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus. So we're coming to an interpretation based on the observations, based on taking some time and observations. Now let me try and go back out to a wide view here. 
Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> That's a good point. Now, even though this painting is entitled The Last Supper, based on our observations, we can interpret more closely what moment of The Last Supper it is. It should be rather obvious to you right now, even if when you first look at this painting, that did not even come to your mind. When in The Last Supper is this painting? Paul. Yes, right. This has got to be right after the announcement. Jesus betrayer. He says, one of you will betray me. And now that makes sense with what we observed, right? All these different reactions. You see this guy on the left, he's a little bit in shadow here, but he's almost angry. He's like, what? He, he's got his hands on the table. You have other people that are, are pointing towards Jesus, asking each other questions. We've got John, or we've got Peter leaning in on John saying, ask Jesus who it is. Even though this is the Last Supper, what we think about is a very holy and, and uh, meditative scene. This is an interesting choice. that He's, he's chosen this moment of, of discord, this moment of um, uncertainty, confusion, and betrayal, where Jesus announces his betrayal. It's quite interesting. I find that, or I don't know if any of you know, does anybody know where this painting actually was hung? This would be interesting in trying to interpret the purpose of this painting. It is on the far wall of a, uh, a convent, I believe, in the dining hall. It's kind of interesting, right? Last supper, Jesus is sitting down and his betrayer is announced. So if you're a monk or a nun, you go down to eat your lunch, and you're looking at this painting, what might that make you think? Say that again. Like one of the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to be... If we recognize what the scene is about, and especially if it's placed in a dining hall, that's going to make us meditate a little bit about, like, would I betray Jesus? Am I betraying Jesus? Now, we could say more, and we could look at more clues, and we can interpret more about this. But this is just to give you an example of that. When you really look closely at something, there are a lot of things there. And they've been purposefully put there. Here the artist has chosen his colors and his lines and uh, his characters and the different details of the characters, all for a specific purpose. And we're able to tease out some of those things once we've observed them. And it's the same with the text. And it's the same with biblical texts. Because God has chosen to do everything there on purpose. And we can observe texts in a similar way. Hold on. What we want to do is make observations truly reading a text. Now, reading is more than just looking at the words. It's observing them. It's noticing them, thinking about them, searching them, realizing that every word, phrase, sentence, paragraph, detail was specifically chosen by the author, just like a specific line or color is chosen by an artist. So, with our last bit of time, I want to show you a biblical passage, and we're going to do the same thing. I just want you to tell me what you see. I don't really want to move to the interpretation stage yet, but I just want you to tell me what you notice from the biblical text. Hopefully it's legible. It's a kind of a bigger section, so let's see. Okay. Genesis. Genesis 5, 1 to 11. 
This is in the ESV. It says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them, and he named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he'd fathered Kenan 815 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. And might be saying to yourself, oh, genealogy? Could you have chosen any more boring passage for us to observe? It's actually not boring. And there are really some interesting things here. Tell me, what do you see? Yeah. Yes, what do you mean by overlap? That's a great observation. And I don't have the rest of the passage in front of you, but you'll see that it keeps on going. I actually looked. It's the eighth generation. Adam was alive until he saw the eighth generation. He saw Lamech. He knew Lamech, Noah's dad. That's pretty crazy. He even saw Enoch go, you know, disappear. He was alive around that time. Yeah. It would seem that way, right? I mean, psh, 130 years before you had a kid? Man, adolescence must have taken a long time. But that's a really interesting observation because consider, this is Genesis 5. What is already taking place here? We're thinking about the context a little bit. Cain and Abel. So actually, Seth is not the first son. Adam's already had kids. But for some reason in this genealogy, Seth, is listed. It says after 130 years he had Seth. Yeah, when we think about that, that might tell us a little bit about how we interpret this genealogy and the, the, the different people that are listed there. What were you going to say, Amy? Yeah. Ah, that's kind of interesting, right? Now we'll, we'll, have to, we'll have to figure out whether that interpretation really works, but that phrase, he fathered him in his own likeness, applied to Seth. Interesting. What else do you notice? Bill. Yes, that is true. Uh, Adam is 930, Seth 912, and then Enosh 905. Though that's a little bit unfair because, or that's, it's unfair for me to make you make that observation because if you look at the rest of the passage, you'll see it actually varies. Methuselah, who's going to come later, is actually going to live longer than Adam. But here, that's a good observation. What else? Very good, right? And this is one of the things that has been driven home with answers in Genesis. There are other kids. And if we think about it, if he lived 930 years, how many kids did he have? I mean, Adam, must, Adam and Eve, they could have had a ton of kids. And those kids could have had a ton of kids. Which means by the time we get to the eighth generation or the ninth generation, when we get with Noah, 
there could have been a ton of people on the earth. And if what's also true with uh, Answers in Genesis presenting that the, their bodies were better than ours, they hadn't decayed, they hadn't degenerated as much as ours, then they may have been, um, uh, they may have had more kids then than we have today. They have you know, less miscarriages and um, more fertile or whatever. They, they could have been fine for them. They could have been having lots and lots of kids. That's something else. What else? Seth. I mean, not Seth. Steve. <laughs> yes, that's really interesting, right? That the plural is almost contained inside the singular. By the way, does anybody know what Adam means? Shaji. means man. So when it says um, he named them man, it actually says he named them Adam. And then it says when Adam had lived 130 years. So more, even to what you were saying, that both of them are actually contained in the term man and in the term Adam. Yeah, Roy. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's very good. Yeah, Greg. Yeah. Yeah, it calculates it after he had the kid, and he lived that many years, but it also tells you his total number of years. Yeah, absolutely right. A few others. Yeah, Dwayne. Yeah, that's really interesting, right? And that probably brings a question to your minds. How did they know that? I mean, that's pretty precise. Was it written down? Is this special revelation to Moses? Did, was this something passed down? They say, hey, man, you remember Adam? He lived 912 years. Remember that. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But they knew. Somehow the writer knew. Yeah, Amy, something else. Good question. And this is another thing what good observations will do. They ask questions sometimes. We might not even know the answer just from this passage, but we can say when it comes to interpreting, going to the next level, we can say, let me find out. And that's good. It does, you're, you're good to observe that it does refer to itself and even titles itself. This is the book of the generations of Adam. But that's kind of interesting, too, because the book has already started. So it's calling, the book is, one section is calling itself a book. One more observation. Who will be the last? Yeah, go ahead. Hmm. come to the interpretation that why? Was it to just make it more accurate to make sure that there were no changes? Was it because the audience would be listening to this and not reading this and they wanted to make it 
easier for them to, to understand and to remember? I don't know. One other thing, and this is just one observation I made on the passage, is that perhaps you notice the repetition of a certain phrase in the first couple of verses. The likeness, right? It says, God created man. He made him in the likeness of God. And only a few verses later it says, um, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image. Why would he use that phrase, likeness, and talk about that image so close to when he just talked about God giving his likeness and God giving his image? I'm not sure. But I feel like it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing to look at. I have my, my own um, suspicion as to what that is. But we're not going to the interpretation step yet. So all this to say, even something like a genealogy where you say, man, I don't know if there's anything interesting here, anything really to learn or to interpret or to apply. No. This, just like any other scripture, is, is ripe for observation. And that's where we've got to start. That's where we've got to start so that we can come up with those accurate and profitable interpretations and then we can move to an accurate and profitable application. Well, we're going to learn a little bit more next week about specific types of observations. What are some of the things we can look for specifically? Not just say, oh, well, something. No, we can actually look for specific things. I'll tell you a little bit more about that next week and talk a little bit about organizing them. But that's it for now. Uh, let's pray. Holy Father, thank you so much for today and for this time. And I thank you just for the insights of these different people and their, their willingness to participate. Lord, allow, allow this to continue for us in our personal Bible study where we take something, no matter what it is, and we just slow down a little bit and just look to notice what it is that you put there purposefully so that we can come and we can piece together those information so we can answer those questions that are raised as we look at the passages and say, what are you trying to say to me, God? What were you trying to communicate? What are you communicating? And then how can I live that out? Lord, bless their study. You say that you blessed man when you created him. So continue that blessing by blessing us in the, the study of the scriptures. Make it just... Uh, more rich and continue to bless this year as we go forward. Bless the rest of the service. Bless the food, Lord, as uh, we have some refreshment in between the services and um, allow the fellowship to be true and sweet and profitable today. Pray this in your name. Amen.